Welcome to a brand new episode of our Troll Expeditions podcast. Here we talk about our exciting journeys far and wide across the land of fire and ice, as well as hear from our tour guides who facilitate them. It's time to talk about the famous south coast of Iceland, with its iconic waterfalls, volcanoes and black sand beaches. Today with us is an ex-politician, daughter of a famous musician, a social worker and a tour guide extraordinaire, Maga. Welcome to our podcast, Maga. Thank you so much for having me. It's a big pleasure. And we have talked before. You're the first uh, woman on our podcast. Quite exciting, you know, to, how do I say, sort of crush our sausage fest, you know, as, yes. as we did. Uh, we had quite I, a... I'm privileged to be the one who got to crush it. I'm very happy to have you over because I, I don't know you very well. Just as a sort of an explanation, we mostly had 100% guys before. Uh, these were just people that I know quite well, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, I used to work with, so I know about them and their history, you know, so I w was already kind of hyped up to talk uh, to them. But of course, like, I've heard of you, and uh, you're quite a personality, Maga, for a couple of reasons, really, you know, and uh, this is why I'm also very excited to have you over. One of those reasons is uh, your dad was a famous musician, correct? And is. Yes. He is, yeah. Yes. He's still uh, touring and... Uh, yes. Yeah. The last thing I knew that he was doing the television show with like Heima with Helgi on Saturday. Wow. He was his guest, his main guest. Yes, my father is a rock star. He's a rock star. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know how many albums that he... Um, no. No. I don't think he even knows himself. Okay. So he was like a child prodigy. He started being in bands when he was 15. He's from Keplavik. And he's been in many of them. And so music and being a musician... Is his life work, and he's written and produced many of Iceland's most renowned songs, I would say. It's very interesting. And you know what also is interesting? That he's from Keplavik. And yes. I think Keplavik is like sort of a, a like a birthplace of so many rock stars yeah. in Iceland, right? There is actually a reason for that. Did you know tell that? Tell me, tell me. So we had the Navy base, yeah. right, in yeah. Keplavik. So my parents... The, the for those, for our listeners, the American military base that was set yes. up in 1951... Yes. So my parents, my mother was from Njarvik and my father's from Keplavik. And my parents, they like kind of described themselves as border kids. They were living on the borders of the base. And on the other side of the fence, there was the United States. On the other side of the fence, it was just like these kids from Keplavik. There's a couple of factors that kind of contributed to that most of the musicians at that time came from Keplavik, the biggest ones. And we have the, like, the Museum of Rock and Roll in Keplavik. Yeah, I've seen it. They had an amazing music school. They had very good music teachers. Now, my grandmother, Goya, which I'm named after, she was a, a pianist and a musician herself. Now, these boys they were uh, and girls, they were like, doing music all day. And then the base kind of approached them because the people who were living at the base, they needed entertainment. Right. And they have like the officers club and they had Wendy's and they had clubs in the Navy base. So the kids, they just formed bands, you know, picked up a couple of songs and then they went to the Navy base to perform and entertain the, the people living at the base. So they got very good practice in performing. And also, because they were so close to the base, they could catch the radio, the radio station that the people who are living in America all all right, right, were I listening see. to. So they were like, you know, the first ones in Iceland to get in contact with the Beatles and all these bands. And But the, the kids who were living in Reykjavik, they didn't have this access like the ones who are living in Keplavik. Gotcha. So there are a couple of like social factors that kind of made this like the town of rock and roll. It's very interesting. I had no idea about it. It's like quite a... Interesting chapter in the in history of, of Keplavik that yeah. just apart from that, you know, seems like kind of a nondescript location, to be honest. But then yeah. the vicinity of the military base kind of changed it and transformed it into something, something mm -hmm. else, right? And also because they had a very good access to an amazing music school at that time. Right. And I suppose that also like records... Uh, final yes. records would leak out from the military base yes, from the soldiers of course. so everybody had access yeah. to it as well and they were just flying straight for the united states with all the new stuff right that you know the new music at that time that was changing the world that's very interesting so uh in a sense this uh, connection to the military base was basically opened up the venues you know and the doors mm -hmm. and the and the, the i would say the musical tastes of the yes. population of keplavik in a sense yes. right Yep. Yeah. i've heard uh, quite some things about uh, this military base in keplavik and keplavik itself I remember that one thing that I always tell my people on the, on the bus that uh, it was when the soldiers from 
US would be to uh, be assigned to uh, fly over and transfer sort of to Keplavik and stay there, uh, they would be like crying, you know, yeah. over is like, no, not Iceland. And in a sense, uh, I, I, I would understand it as because, well, Keplavik is quite isolated, I think, yep. from the And then the, the weather city, yeah. and the darkness and everything that comes with it. Yeah. And I remember when I first, because I, of course I'm not an Icelander mm -hmm. uh, by birth, when I first flew into Iceland and I got off in Keplavik and started driving towards Reykjavik and just across the peninsula, across Reykjanes, I was kind of just like, what is going on here? Like, this is, <laughs> this is I completely myself flat, into? you know? Yep. <laughs> There's nothing interesting here. It's just like a field <laughs> of rocks and, uh, and windy and, uh, yeah. Yep. So I suppose that's also, in a sense, I think um, might be uh, maybe inspiring for imagination and for creativity. Because when you don't have all those things, you know, to mm -hmm. maybe see and uh, focus on, then you just uh, get a little bit inside yourself and find things to write songs about, I suppose, and music. Yeah. What do you say to that? I'm not very artistic myself, so I, but I get very inspired by nature. Extremely so but just for my mind and thinking and getting ideas. So I think that nature in Iceland is very inspiring. It's always amazing. It's always uh, like surprising you. You can go to the same spot, the same place, you know, millions of times, but it's never the same. So I think that also is a spark of creativity, of course, because you're always seeing the same areas, but in a different light and uh, like a different aspect. I don't know if my father has ever talked to me about that um, part, if he has been inspired by his, by Icelandic nature and his musical writings. I think he's mostly been inspired by the people around him, I guess. Yeah, if you go to Keplerk today, there is a light pole, for example. It has like my father's picture on it, a name and a lyrics of a song. Oh, wow. Called Skolabal or the school dance. And if you like push the button of the light pole, it's like it like plays the song. So it's like a memorial about my parents' uh, marriage because it's a true song and it's about my mother. Such so your family is uh, completely intertwined with the history and the landscape of Keplavik itself. Oh, yeah. Uh, my dad's brother. That's an uncle. He's the mayor. Yeah. Oh, I see. <laughs> well, makes sense now. Yep. Yeah. I'm very, very intertwined with yeah. Keplavik. So I have a question to you, as since uh, you know so much about Keplavik, something that... Uh, I've never lived in Keplavik. Right. I am from Hapnafjörður. Yeah, but you might know, so I'm yeah. going to ask you. And uh, for people that drive into Keplavik as well, maybe straight from the airport, there might be... I was surprised to see at some point that they have... On a roundabout, a uh, Eiffel Tower. Yeah. And then another one. I have no idea what it is. And it's yeah. so ugly. Yeah. Keplavik has never been known for its beautiful architecture mm -hmm. or where they get some of their ideas of decorating the town. I'm, I'm just always amazed by the ugliness of it. It's right. quite funny, actually. I love going, for example, to Keplavik uh, before Christmas because there are people there. Who, they do like Griswold times uh -huh. 10 in decorating, I think. Yeah. And I can feel it in my parents. So my mother was a flight attendant for Iceland Air for 40 years. And, you know, and they are from Keplavik. And you can always feel there's a little America in them. They're just from little America. Yeah. They love going to the States. And, you know, they're, they're all very Americans. In their little hearts, they are. My wife uh, calls this like overwhelming Christmas decoration. Like she calls it a Christmas barf. So uh, I, I think that kind of pictures it like pretty mm -hmm. well. Uh, so uh, I have a question to you then. Um, growing up as a daughter of a famous musician, mm -hmm. do you think you have inter inherited some of your dad's sort of stage panache? It's like, or... Well, yes. Well, I don't know if I inherited anything from my dad. Um, we're, pro we're very so much alike as persons. And when we class, we class hard. But the thing is that I have been in front of a microphone since I was five years old. I've been... Uh, singing in advertisements and in records. And um, you probably you talk about my father and my political career. But the thing is, I'm also a, a child star in Iceland. Oh, wow. Yep. I participated in the Eurovision Song Contest in 1988 with my dad. And we did a song called Sola Samba. And it's just doesn't die. It's just like always in probably somewhere in top 100 most played songs in uh, Icelandic radio. So just to cut you in here, so you did go to... Uh, no, we didn't win, thank oh, God. Win. Okay, I see. But it became a very popular uh -huh. song. Gotcha. So, gotcha. yeah. And so and I was playing and um, I did gigs with my dad all the time. We were doing like Christmas dances. And so I am very fortunate that I was 
trained and I got a lot of practice in standing on a stage. Right. Talking and performing and having that confidence and making mistake and just covering up for them and blah, blah, blah. So maybe that has also contributed to my kind of character. And people sometimes look at me and say, yeah, like, you don't have, see, you seem to have no fear when you talk in front of people. And I really want to make that clear. It, I was not born that way. I was trained and I got a lot of practice. I have the same, I think. Like I never had a, anybody in my family who was had any sort of uh, stage persona or anything like that. But I got to say that since I started uh, to be a tour guide, mm -hmm. it became uh, extremely easy for me to talk in front of people. Mm -hmm. a big groups, small groups, and just, uh, I get it. I get what you're saying. Uh, it's just practice, really. It's yeah, just absolutely. practice. Yeah. Everybody can do it. Everybody, you just have yeah. to practice. Mm -hmm. To some extent. Uh, my uh, wife, for example, she's an uh, an introvert. And she says, <laughs> like, I would never be able to do what you're doing. I would never well, I'm an extrovert as well. Yeah, same here. Yep. Uh, what's your zodiac sign then? Uh, Scorpio. Scorpio, okay. Born in the year of the then. dragon yeah. also. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm a Leo, so also, yeah. you know, kind of. And I, I, I mean, I like attention. It doesn't bother me. But then again, I also have to retrieve from it and mm -hmm. rest from it as well. And recharge. Yeah, and recharge. And nature is good for that, isn't it? It is. It's Absolutely. amazing for it. Yeah. It's my recharge drug. I want to segue into another question. And now I know it's something everybody talks about and you as well, when they yeah. think of you, of course. And, yeah. uh, but for the best or worst, in other people's eyes, you're the most recognizable as an ex-MP of Althingi, which is the Icelandic yeah. parliament. Yeah. So how did you come up with an idea to go into uh, politics? <laughs> you know, everybody around me and my friends, my my brother, uh, my my dad, I was, very, I was raised in studios. I was um, raised underneath stages and being like a part of my dad's entourage and taking care of his stuff and all his musical equipments. But the thing is that I didn't ever found myself as a musician. I did, didn't, you know, I was singing, yes, but just because, you know, other people wanted me to, it never came to me uh, like something that I wanted to do myself. But I was born with, uh, I think, very strong opinions And I'm very opinionated. And I, as like I told you, I've been very well trained of performing and then also speaking them out loud. And I get very, very angry when I witness or experience injustice. I can't help myself. I always have to speak up. I always have been that way. I never tolerated if I saw somebody in my class or in other areas being bullied or anything. I would always take on the mountain. Even though they're all boys, maybe five, six, seven years older than me and twice my size, I would just attack them. That's my personality. That's how I've always been. I was born that way. And then I didn't participate in any kind of politics when I was a teenager or young woman in that aspect. But when I became a mother, I became a mother very young. I was just around 22 years old. And she was born with some disabilities. Uh, and I just started feeling the injustice of the system and, you know, how hard it was. And not only for her, but also for me. And, you know, it, and it just kind of grew on me. And then I went to university and I started education. I was studying education because at that time I was starting to work in youth centers, which was like totally fitting for me. I tried being a teacher, but working in youth centers is just like, You know, something clicked within me because it, it's like endless opportunities of everything in youth centers. But in the classroom, it is not. You know, um, our education system is very boxed and I don't I don't function in boxes. Anyways, so uh, I was in university when I was doing some courses and always when the teacher was saying something and he was asking for somebody's opinion, I was always the one just to raise my hand and ask the difficult questions or having the different opinion than the other ones. And, and then I was approached and I was asked if I wanted to like, you know, go and check out some political parties. And so I did. And I found myself in kind of visions. They were very entwined at that time. Uh, with the social democrats they also had a woman as a leader and I'm I've always as well been a feminist I was born that way as well so I p started participating in that uh, political party here in Iceland and the youth sector of the political party at 23 at 29 I became an elected uh, member of the town council in my town of Hafnafjörður um we uh, have 11 
members in the town council and Hafnafjörður is like the third largest municipality in Iceland. So Hafnafjörður is like the first kind of town you drive into when you're coming from the Keflavik airport. But this is also the part of the Kaplaria for our listeners. Uh, it's actually seamlessly connected to Reykjavik and to other municipalities. Yeah. So it uh, forms this like big, big town or city. Yeah. You know? But we in Hafnafjörður are very proud. We don't say we are a suburb from Reykjavik. Reykjavik is a suburb from Hafnafjörður. Well, I mean, Hafnafjörður was the first one, uh, I think, to be the most developed town in Iceland, mm-hmm. actually, in fact, before uh, yeah. Reykjavik. And I mean, we have a harbor, harbor and we yeah. have our own like town and everything. Mm-hmm. So it was like two different towns, Reykjavik and Hafnafjörður, yeah. and then the other is that it grew together kind of. Yeah. So I became a member of the town council and that's where my political, uh, I was only 29, kind of career started and became kind of my life for 12 years. And a part of those 12 years, I was also a member of parliament for three. So that was just what I did. I was just like, I was the president of the town council um, for the last four years. And I was just like very highly into everything that, was around Hafnafjörður and also in in Parliament. I participated in five heavily elections and pre-elections. And so that's probably why when people think about my name, they kind of could probably connected to my dad at one, some point. You know, maybe they're like the older Icelandic people. My dad is 70. So like the older generation, they kind of connect me to that one. But maybe my the people who are my age and a little bit younger, they connect my name to politics. You would probably sum yourself up as a social warrior. And maybe that's also the reason why you decided to uh, go and have some influence over the politics, right? Yes. I've always been an activist. And I have a voice and it's very easy for me to use it and speak up and uh, write stuff that I'm thinking down. So probably it was a good time, but it also and another aspect, being a young woman in politics is extremely hard. It's ridiculously hard. I had to put in twice as much efforts and work into everything that I did. And what about having kids and being in politics? Yeah. Uh, isn't it like really, really difficult to to um, get those things together? Isn't like time-wise? Yes. So uh, when I became elected, I had my first town council meeting the 26th of June of 2006. And I gave birth to my daughter, my second daughter on like the end, two months later. No, month later. Sorry. Uh, so I was like at my first meeting at the town council, I was like heavily pregnant. Right. And I was breastfeeding at the town council and, you know, up in the podium when and while I was giving speeches. And the only reason why this worked for me is that I have an amazing husband who loves staying at home and he loves playing house and cook and clean and taking care of his children. So I'm just the one who carries them and gives birth to them, but he raises them. Beautiful. It's, it's a beautiful relationship. It's a perfect marriage for me. Yeah. I would say that's maybe for our listeners, you know, a picture of true equality in Iceland. As yep. In, as uh, interchangeable roles yeah. and home in the household. I think yeah. that's what it boils down to. I myself was a stay-home dad for uh, over years, so also cleaning and, and cooking and all that yeah. stuff. And in Iceland, that's just a normal thing. Nobody probably approached you and you were saying, yeah, I'm a stay-at-home dad. Nobody thought it was weird or anything. It's just, that's just how it goes. Not at all. Yeah, it's, it is. And uh, it's quite satisfying too. Yeah, I'm very, very proud of it. In my household, we have very good you know, like divisions with everything that comes down to our kids and everything. Actually, he is the one who probably contributes more. But then again, I am the one, I'm always working. Right. But that suits me. Mm-hmm. I like working. I like what I do. I'm having fun as well. Why did you decide to pivot your career away from politics at some point? It wasn't easy and I had experience like sexual harassment and a lot of kind of bad experiences within the um, like the political arena. There was just like this time in my life around maybe when I was like 35, I think I just had enough. I actually didn't like the person that I had become. I didn't like her at all. And I knew that at that time that if I was going to make this a life career that it was just a make it or break it. Either now I just go full force in and I do this as my life career, politics, nothing else. Or I get out and adventure to like where my heart actually has always been belonged to work with young people and be creative and do all these amazing projects and stuff. And 
just, I missed that and I missed that part of me and just my spark had left. And one day I just looked myself in the mirror and just like, is this really what you want? Do you want to spend your life in this area? It, you know, you're probably going to have some impact, but are you going to be having fun? So I decided to quit. So when we had like the town council elections in 2018, I didn't run. So the question was, do you continue and or you, do you want to be happy? And you exactly. chose to be happy. I chose to be happy. I so, chose to find the happy version of me again. So I've heard that the guiding, the tours have been somewhat of a life transforming choice for you, wasn't it? Yes, it was. How did um, you uh, come up with that idea to do that? I don't know. There was this time when my husband, he moved actually to the interior of the country. He moved to Hapn. And I was alone in Hapnafirur working as a politician. And when you work as a politician, it's a very weird job. You have like meeting one day, then you don't have like nothing for two days. And then you have like a very long day. And there came these times where I just like two, three days and I didn't have anything to do. So it's very funny because I always wanted, you know, like I really wanted to try to be a tour guide. I thought like that could be something that I could be good at. I put like a status on Facebook. So how do you become a tour guide in this country? A friend of mine, he contacted me right away. And it's like, I'm going to get you in contact with Inko, my friend. You talk. We're starting with this. He's starting this tour company called Troll Expeditions. And we're doing this tour. And he's looking for tour guides. And I was like, yeah, sure. And then two weeks after my 40th birthday, I went there and I met Inko in a, like a house somewhere in Leugavegur. And it was, this was like a backyard house. We had a chat. We kind of clicked. I saw like, he's kind of nuts. I like it. And he probably liked me too. And then we just, I started working as a troll. So the first tours that we were doing, we were very lucky because we were actually like just sitting guides. I was not a driver guide. We were just, you know, we, he was just renting out us as guides to, into these tours. So we always had a driver with us, even though we were in a small bus. And doing like two to eight tours and stuff. We were very lucky. I was usually very lucky, not all the time, but that I was working maybe with very experienced, you know, very nice bus drivers. And they were just training me while they were driving. You're like, say this here, do this here, do that and da, da, da. And because they had been working with all these guides through the years. So they had like a picture in their head of the perfect guide. And they were like always teaching me. It was an adventure and I like adventure and excitement. And, and then I just liked being out in nature and I love the South Coast and I love Hapn and I love Skaftafell. I used to work there as a teenager at a hotel Skaftafell and then... Oh, really? Yes. Do you know that I know that you have been also like recently at some point, but did you know that I used to work there as well? No. Yeah, I did. Yeah, actually the first time I came to Iceland. Uh, Where? In Hotel Skaftafell. You did? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was the no. hotel manager there. No, yeah, I know, but it was after I left. Already. Ah, yeah, okay. Yeah. I, I know about it yep. because I remember that there's been a period like that, that somebody told me, oh, my guy is now a, a manager in Hotel Skaftavet, but I was I used to work there, yeah. Just right when they were shooting Interstellar, actually. Uh-huh. So I, I have okay. received them and uh, I used to serve coffee to uh, Christopher Nolan at five o'clock every morning and drink mm. beer with Anne Hathaway every evening. True story, yeah. It's never boring at Hotel Skaftafell. Yeah, no, definitely. There's always not. something. Well, the, the sunsets are probably the most exciting in my opinion. You know, when the sun sets pink on Hrutfjastindar uh, yeah. and Orayvajokatl, yeah. uh, it's just so beautiful. Uh, that kind of, uh, you can lose your mind over it in a sense. You can. And it was just an excellent way. It was an excellent way also for me to kind of rediscover nice parts of me. Politics brings out the worst in you. That's just how it goes. And you have to make a choice at one ta- point in time that you have to, it, the people who survive politics are the ones who are smart enough to you maybe stay out of the worst parts in politics or just kind of uh, protect their souls from the worst part of politics. Is it because of the compromises that you have to make with your ideals? Yeah, or? it's just like people are, are willing to stab you in the back to, mm-hmm. to get ahead. The, the worst part of politics is not between the political parties. It's mostly the worst part in politics is you have to endure within your own political party. Leaving, it was very funny because getting on a bus with a bunch of happy people, but because everybody who's traveling is in a good mood. And adult, I never actually told them about what I was doing in my past or anything. I was just Maggie, the teacher. I skipped usually all the parts about Maggie, the politician, or Maka, the politician, or the child star or whatever. I just was a Maggie, the teacher, and now you're a guide. 
I kind of reprogram my brain of human contact and human interactions and how actually they are polite and nice and how that the world is full of amazing people, super nice people who are willing to engage in all sorts of positive adventures and experiences with you. I also really loved being a part of Troll because I, I have never, in the five years that I have worked for the company, I have never experienced that I am not trusted for some kind of a task or because of my gender. I've never felt my gender within Troll. I love it. I'm just a part of the team. And like, I don't have a gender. I usually, they throw at me the heaviest tasks. I love it. It was nice. It was also nice being a part of a team that everybody's worse, like together working at the same goal and like being in service of people that sometimes are coming to this country with high expectations and they're not getting the northern lights they thought they were or whatever. Then you just have to kind of bring out the positive things in every, every situation, being happy all the time. It suits me. It's just, it was good training because after I left politics, so I started guiding in 2016. So I was a politician and a guide for two years. And then I completely left politics. But after that, the two years after that, or year after that, I had to reprogram a lot of things in my head and in my brain about human interactions and just the way I thought about myself and everything, the paranoia, the anxiety and everything, all these horrible feelings that you earn with being a part of politics. I just have to like rewind from all of them. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I yeah, this uh, definitely, you know, a career choice. And uh, like you said, people are nice and they're happy. So yeah. uh, you mostly just spend time with uh, kind of making them happier. Yeah. yeah and so, showing uh, them nature. Of course. Our amazing nature. And then I became a glacier guide as well. And I also found like a pathway for my activism towards raising awareness about the effects of global warming. So that's why I love the glaciers. I love taking people to the glaciers because there I get to like explode as the teacher as well and the activist. So it kind of has little aspects of everything that I need in my life. And also it helped me just like rewire all of my bad habits that I had learned and acquired. You see, I, for example, used to have a desk job before I was doing that, mm -hmm. as in working in the field as a tour guide and watching beautiful landscapes every day. So for me, it was also a form of therapy, I would say. Mm -hmm. you know? So I live here in the city, but it would, I think, be in a sense difficult for me to be also working in a city, mm -hmm. as in working every day outside of the city and watching the, beautif yeah. the beauty of nature. Yeah. It really uh, makes my day. It, it just yeah. makes my day. And it was very funny. I told you about my grandmother, Goya, which I'm so fortunate I carry her name. So she was an amazing character, a musician herself. So she passed. I was supposed to do a two-day tour. And I was supposed to be a troll at 7.30. At 7, I got the phone call that she had passed. And I was with her the, just the evening before. Everybody was just like, I called the office. And they were like, do you want to cancel? I was like, no. Best thing I'm doing for myself now is just go on the road. So I took my daughter with me as a support, my oldest one. And I can never forget them. We were like driving, Hedleshaven, we're driving to the South Coast. And looking up to the stars, it was winter, it was December. And I saw like a star falling in the sky. It was perfect. It was the best kind of therapy of sadness, but also joyness and happiness because this woman had an amazing life. And I was so fortunate to be a part of it. The best thing that I could have done was go on a two-day tour to the South at that point to, to be happy. To get the nature fix. To get the nature fix, yes. Yeah. And this is uh, what I think traveling around, uh, around Iceland is, is really about, you know, the, know. the nature fix for sure. Yeah. And so, every time I'm going to the glacier and my, my kids may be asking, where are you going today? And I say, I'm going to see my shrink. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because I've never, ever, not once I have come, to, even though the disgustings of weather and horrible people angry and pissed, I've never come down from a glacier hike unhappy. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I have exactly the same feelings about the glaciers. They're just so stunning. Mm -hmm. So uh, tell us a little bit about the glaciers then. What do you think uh, is going to happen and, uh, and how should we proceed? Because you said about the global warming, I want to hear more. Scientists say that if this continues on this rate, 
the raising temperature of the atmosphere and its effects. It's, there are not going to be any glaciers in Iceland within 200 years. There may be some leftovers on the top of Anayogut. And that's just horrible because maybe people don't kind of realize that glaciers in Iceland, they also protect us here on this island and the rest of the planet because they are working as lids, a mass that is just tempering our biggest, most horrendous volcanoes, for example. And when the glaciers are not there and we're just going to have open wounds of eruptions going off, and God knows what's going to come up with those eruptions, like did with Laki, for example. Yeah. And Holerun. There was acid that came up with Holerun. So I think that I always feel like I'm doing some kind of a service to the planet when I take people from all over the planet up on a glacier and be able to give them this experience of being a part of a glacier and how beautiful and amazing they are. And and what they contribute to all of our living and what will happen when they will melt because it's going to be horrendous. The planet will probably survive, but humans won't. I think that we need to get more people in contact with glaciers so they see what is happening with their bare eyes and maybe they will leave this country with this a little bit of a seed of a feeling that maybe I should participate in something of this to try to save the glaciers. Agreed. And uh, there is something very commendable that you have facilitated recently, trips to the glacier for asylum seekers. And yes. uh, tell me, uh, can you tell me a little bit about this initiative? Who were those people? Where did they come from? And how did they react when you put them in front of our natural wonders? So my main job is actually, I am running youth centers and counseling centers in my hometown of Hapnafjörður, two of them. So I'm back the source. I'm back to where I started. I've gone full circle, but I'm still guiding because I can't let it go because I enjoy it too much as well. But also, you know, I've been educating myself throughout the years with a couple of university degrees. So I really want to put those ones also into some kind of use and service. And I have been applying for funds and that we have gotten them. We got a fund from Rannis and we established this project Hamar in my youth center with the Red Cross Youth Club and they have the main task of kind of servicing uh, young unaccompanied uh, refugees that are here in Iceland and giving them some social activities and empowerment. So me in Hamarin and uh, we as a youth center and the Red Cross are in a collaboration. So we had this idea and I brought it to the table because during COVID, it was a heavy lockdown. And can you just imagine being an asylum seeker? You're just locked up in a room somewhere, maybe in Keplavik or in the industrial village in Havnafjordur and there's nothing. They have nothing. I at least had my children and I had my husband and I had my friends and they have nothing. They're just sitting in their room staring at the wall with no social connections. So we decided to participate in this project. So me being a guide and allowed to drive a bus and everything and have this amazing connection with troll expeditions. So we got the fund and we took the group of young unaccompanied refugees to like six, seven like day tours. And one of them was taking them to the glacier. So we went in wintertime and it was amazing. There were a lot of guys from troll three or four of them who participated in a project like Pro Bono, just as volunteers. And they just, most of them are boys, were on the glacier that day. There was one girl from Afghanistan, but most of them were boys. One is from, was from Albania, but most of them are from Gaza, Palestine. And it was just an amazing, wonderful day. And all of the project, every aspect of it, every trip, everything that we did, it was amazing. But how we, did they like it, though? They loved it. Yeah. How, how, what, what were they saying when they first uh, stepped on a glacier? What do you think? One just started hysterically laughing. And I asked him, I was like, well, it's so funny. He said, I, I learned about this in, in school, but I never thought I would ever experience wow. of standing on one. And then I described to them everything about global warming. And you have to understand that these boys uh, and all these kids are amazing, intelligent human beings who just want to be a part of our society. And they really experienced that day that they were a part of something very special here in Iceland that day. And then again, they're just teenagers. 
you cannot forget that as well. Even though all the trauma and all the horrendous and everything that they've been through, they're just teens who really wanted to pose with an ice axe and get an amazing picture for Instagram, just like everybody else. So they were loving that aspect of the glacier as well, just running around laughing and taking pictures and selfies of each other. And then we were dancing on the glacier and they were teaching all of us, you know, we were doing like this, these Arabic dances on the glacier. And that was very fun. Must have been I've quite never fun. danced to in like Arabic music before on a glacier. Must have been quite fulfilling. It was for everybody who participated. Um, it was, it was a very, very good experience. Very happy to hear that. Yeah. I gotta say, I also heard that uh, you have become quite a cold water expert <laughs> as in cold water ocean swimming sessions. Yeah. And all of that because of, surprisingly, of COVID. Mm -hmm. uh, so can you tell me a little bit about that? It's a funny story, actually. And of course, it always comes down to this, all the source of everything in my life these days, the troll expeditions. I had recently stopped working as a hotel manager of Hotel Skastavell. And I was like in a kind of limbo. I was finishing my master's degree and I was, um, I, I'm also a wedding celebrant from the Humanist Association in Iceland. So I just wanted to do like a couple of months of just doing that, just guiding, being on the road, being a part of nature and, you know, marrying people all over the place. Finishing my master's degree and kind of just figure myself out on what I wanted to do when I grew up. In the March of 2020, I was guiding a lot. And I was not doing anything else, just guiding and guiding and studying and studying. And then COVID was just collapsing everything. And we could just feel everything collapsing around us. It was like, you probably know. It was like being in a sci-fi movie. We had no idea what was going on. I had no aspect of, of like, understand, like, what is happening? So it happened that I was going, I thought I was going on my last tour. And I came home. And I was sad. I was very sad because I knew that I wasn't going to guide again for some time. And I was like unsure of my future, how I was going to provide for myself. I could probably get some supplements from the government and everything. And, you know, just anxious and I just worried and feeling very bad. So I woke up the day after and I was taking a bath. And then my dear friend Yowie called me and he asked me, so what are you doing? Taking a bath away, feeling sad of what is happening to, in the world. He was like, I, I was wondering, can you pack your things and take a, a like, go on an eight day tour? And I, and I just started laughing. I was like, what? I thought, because I thought Hidney, I thought he was going to do that tour because it was like the last tour of troll expeditions. Before, before the shutdown. Before the COVID, everything. Yeah. And he was like, yeah, he was, but he broke his leg. Oh, wow. During pickup, I know I'm not supposed to laugh. And Hendrik, I'm sorry, but, you know, we were laughing about this hysterically. And because this was like the trip from hell, it was either break your leg or get COVID. Me and you, we were laughing. And I was just like, what did he break? He's like, yep, he broke his leg here in the parking lot. He's on his way to the hospital now. And I was just like, I'm packing my bags. And he ran, Yoway ran into the bus, the bus full of people. With eight people in it, and he drove to my house in Hafnafjörður with the people. And then I came just running out and threw my back in. It's like, hey, I'm your new guy. <laughs> my name's Maggie. Uh, you know, we were having some couple of amazing days, but then I started getting sick. And I. You mean after the tour or during the tour? During the tour. Uh huh. Day three, I woke up very sick. And my stomach was hurting and it was hurting so bad. I just, I didn't know if I was going to survive. And I remember going to do Bivor and they were just wandering around taking pictures. And I went to the bathroom. I just was, I was lying on the floor, literally in the bathroom and just thinking about how I was going to survive this. And, but I faked it. I put up a smile and I was just like, let's go. And then I finished the tour. I have no idea how I did it. A lot of painkillers. Because it's easy, at that time, we didn't have all the answers to COVID. We, everybody thought it was a lung disease, but my stomach was hurting. Yeah. So, you know, I didn't have anything in the lungs. There was nothing going on. I was just like, I had a fever and my stomach was hurting like H-E-L-L. So I even went to the pharmacy in Akureyri. It was just like, look at my stomach because I was like eight months pregnant. And I was just like, please, I know, I don't want this. You weren't eight months pregnant. No, 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 no. I don't even have a uterus. So I don't know how I was going to be like eight months pregnant. 
Anyways, it was, uh, I finished the tour and I went straight to the hospital after I just threw the car and then I was diagnosed with COVID. I was in isolation for four weeks and I was very sick. And it apparently my virus went straight for my brain. So all the symptoms that I was trying to recover from were neural symptoms. It never touched my lungs or anything. Thank God, because I've also heard descriptions of people when they uh, were suffering heavily from COVID and had it all in their lungs. But I, it was basically mainly just neural syndromes in my case. And I was in isolation, very sick for four weeks. I was very sick for four months. I had severe memory loss, fatigue that nobody understands. I've always been a workaholic and I have three kids. I know what it is to be tired, but this is something different, right? And I've also worked as a tour guide in Iceland in winter. I know what it is to be tired, but nothing can compare to this. And then it just didn't go away. My just symptoms, they just did not stop. They didn't leave. And so I became one of the famous long haul COVIDs. It was tough. So I was completely unable to work for four months. And then I started working as the manager on the youth, in the youth center. I got that job um, I was very fortunate, but also it was very fortunate because also I'm a very active person. So if I was just going to be on a sick leave for months and months and months, I would probably gone crazy. But on the other hand, the kids and the young people, they were very understanding and tolerant about me. So in youth centers, you usually have a lot of sofas. So if there was just, a, I was having a bad day. They would just turn down the music a little bit, put a, like a blanket over me. And so it was. You were getting all the support you needed. I, I was getting all the support I needed. Yes. I was very fortunate. I was getting all the social support. I was getting a very good support from my employees. I was getting support from all my friends and family. So it got me through this. But then when we were having one of those episodes, I call them like episodes when I was feeling you know, like at the lowest, when I was having these fatigue fits which are like that you feel so fatigued you throw you're throwing up i don't know how to explain it any more differently you just like everything shakes the only thing you can do is go to sleep take medication that put you out because you, you're you're not able to function and memory loss i didn't remember anything i was like an alzheimer patient I read in this international Facebook group that was like long haul COVID. It was just one. Now each and every country on the planet has like long COVID, Iceland, long COVID, Sweden. I was in this international group and there was a person there who was recommending Wim Hof and cooling. And he said that it was helping him. He took a course in Wim Hof and that he was doing these cooling down methods, cool, cold showers and all that stuff. And the same week, a friend of mine called me and said her sister had just finished the Wim Hof course here in Iceland. And she was thinking about me and maybe we, the two of us, should try it. I've always kind of not liked very much cold water. And it was a challenge. But remembering this thing that this person was talking about in this Facebook group, I was just like, okay, this is a sign. Somebody's trying to tell me something. So we did the course and I just came hooked and it helped me tremendously. I've been through like brain and neural had scans, MRIs and all that stuff. And my doctors told me that it would take me probably two years to fully recover. It took me about 14 months, I would say. So basically doing this cold water training as yes. in like going into the cold water yes. and sort of withstanding yes. it. And swimming. And swimming in, in the, the ocean. ocean. In uh, January. It has boosted up your, uh, your immunology as well yes. as kind of re- helped you recover. Yes. Uh, mentally I, and yes. I suppose neurologically, yeah? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm convinced that because I just felt that how good it was doing me, kind of neutralized my nerve, nerve system. You know, if I was having a bad day, I would just go into the ocean, stay there for a couple of minutes, come out and I would just, you know, it was gone. I was just me again. One time I was just doing it like five times a week, at least with a great group of people Uh, Friends from Troll even. There was also the social aspect of it and the support and everything. So how long did you stay the the longest in cold water then? Oh, I am am able to stay very long in the cold water. Tell me. Did you uh, Um, Maybe like the ocean minus two degrees, I could be up to 10 minutes. Wow. And that really helps, does it? It does. Extremely. Uh 
I love it still today and it's, it helps me still today. And at research show maybe that they have no proof that this is something that is supposed to be working at, at your neural system, even though I just can feel it in my skin. But research show that at least if you do this method and the breathing and everything that comes with it, it does have positive effects on anxiety and depression. So those are neural diseases, right? Of course. So it was probably the, the best thing that I did for myself and I still do. It was my cure. It was my way out. Thank you very much for this. It's good to share that. And uh, yeah, for our listeners as well, if there's anybody out there who's still coping with the aftermath of COVID or just really like many other things, I think it's quite, I want to say, what do you call it? Uh, Like a panacea, Mm -hmm. Uh, but it certainly is one of the things that is being explored right now Mm -hmm. by many people around the world. And it does have like some really interesting positive effects on health. It does. uh, Yeah. The thing is that you have to let go. It's also like a mindset. So you just... I have shoes and I have gloves and then you just go in and your body goes into fight and flight mode and you start hyperventilating and breathing. And then at one point in time, you just have to make a decision. It's just like, Hey, I am in charge and you take control of your breathing and you're just, you're good to go. Yeah. Now, uh, just to be sure so that everybody who's hearing us, uh, please do not do that without uh, proper preparation and training. Yeah. And never so, go alone. Yeah. Don't just jump into the ocean, you know, like when it's cold or like into some cold water, just to be sure, you know, that you will get the support you need from the group that's around you. Yes. And uh, also like you mentioned something about the shoes and hat and gloves, etc. Yeah. So I suppose like neoprene stuff yes. that uh, yes. protects the extremities, you know, yes. so this is important. So yeah. Uh, without doubt, you know, uh, it's better to be prepared uh, mm-hmm. so you actually uh, ha- can have control over yeah. over your body, you know. Yes. And, yeah, of course. And, and I mean, we formed this amazing group of people from all over. They didn't know each other before uh, we started uh, ocean swimming and cold water swimming. And we've done tours to the West Fjords and the North, and they have so many amazing places in Iceland to do ocean swimming in. It's like endless sources. I have have never uh, done this uh, Wim Hof method, but I was somehow acquainted with the groups that come here uh, to, uh, with uh, like, I suppose from Netherlands, uh, Wim Hof groups, and uh, I was doing uh, sweat lodges for them because I I used to facilitate sweat lodges as well. I'm a sweat man. So uh, that was like a part of the whole uh, excursion, you know, for them to go cold water swimming and then get the the other extremity in. So uh, extreme heat of the sweat lodge as well at the same time. Yeah. Uh, so I, I know a little bit about it uh, myself, although yeah. I have never tried it, but maybe I one day. recommend it. Yeah. It's not difficult. It's not rocket science. It's actually so, it's so simple. It's beautiful. Yeah. So Maga, I know that the south coast of Iceland is your favorite tour. Could yes. you take me through it? Let's give our listeners a hint of what they can expect mm-hmm. on the south coast of Iceland. So the way I like to do it, I go and pick everybody up introduce myself, have a wonderful chat about the day and what is uh, ahead us as a group. And then sometimes people are very tired and it is a long day. So I just uh, give people the opportunity just to relax until we get the Kvalsvöllur. And there I highly recommend that people go to the supermarket or to the petrol station there and buy snacks and uh, something to drink and a lot of calories and energy. I like to not spend the time in uh, both Snipersness and in uh, the South Coast in a restaurant somewhere. So I give everybody permission to have sandwiches and stuff in the bus. So we go and snack up and then we head for a Reynisfjara. I like to start there if the weather conditions are in my favor. So we go to Reynisfjara, the black beach. and uh, So it's a, the, the, sun, the black sand beach, black the famous sand one. Beach. So yes. basically it's a, I think it's, they shot some Game of Thrones episodes uh, yes. there. So it's quite famous and with those beautiful basaltic columns mm-hmm. sticking out. And uh, and they also, they're like the beginning scene of Rogue One in Star Wars. I'm a Star Wars fan. That was all filmed there as well. And then we start and we walk around uh, and taking pictures. But I'm always a little worried because people don't really know that the Black Beach is quite a dangerous place. So I really, I always go with my group to the Black Beach and we wander around taking pictures and uh, having a a good time filming each other, standing on the basalt rocks and hexacons that are there. So 
So you don't recommend uh, swimming in no, the black no, no, sand no. beach? Yeah, no, exactly. That's like the probably the worst place in the country to go swimming in. Yeah. Very bad idea. It's very vicious, the ocean there can yes, be. Yes, the least, sneaker yeah. waves and the undertide there is uh-huh. extremely strong. Nowhere in Iceland will you see as many warning signs. Yeah, exactly, that's there. true. And then we go to Solo, my shrink. We park there and then I start gearing everybody up, getting everybody psyched. They're usually somebody who's a little bit nervous, doesn't know exactly what he's getting himself into. So Solo is Solheimajukut, which Solheim is the, the outlet of Myrdalsjukut, the yes. fourth biggest glacier yes. in Iceland. So basically yeah. that's the next stop is the glacier trip. Yes. And then we go uh, and walk towards the glacier and just enjoy it. And I gear everybody up, we put the crampons on and we go through all the like protocols of security and how to conduct yourself while hiking on the glacier. But also I always emphasize and I always try to make everybody aware that a glacier hike is an enjoyment, an experience and a delight, a mindfulness experience. Actually, actually, it's not a PE test. I will never do anything to make people feel uncomfortable, anxious, or scared. You know, I'm a mother of three. I don't do stupid. And that this is a learning process that they're going to be participating in. And then we gear ourselves for the glacier, and then we start wandering around. And you use the first, like, 20, 30 minutes a little bit. I am looking at how everybody's walking, you know, you're getting, I have the experience like you do, you know, you're, you're very fast in spotting the insecure ones who are going to be the ones who are needing an extra hand once in a while. I get everybody comfortable on hiking on the glacier with the crampons on your feet. And it takes a little while to get people to connect with the powers of the crampons, the crampon power. And then we just go wandering around and I educate people as best that I can about what identifies a glacier and how it is formed and its beauty and how it acts and all the nature around it. And we go through the geology and especially so amazing, uh, for example, at Solheimajökull, because there we're walking on the ash of Katla from the eruption of 1918. And then we go through the stories of the area and the volcanoes. And it's a beautiful place where you can combine all these kind of acts. You even have asked there from the eruption of 2010 from Good. So you can also give, on the same time when you're giving them uh, information about ice, you can also give them information about fire. Then we go through and hike up and then I like to stop good place and then we fool around a little bit we taste some glacier water we take funny pictures where people are like hanging from the, their ice axes and and just enjoy the moment and breathe it in and do mindfulness practices and taking pictures of each other and then we start heading down if i was doing like a glacier hike and i was just situated in solo and i had like a huge time schedule the tour says it's supposed to be 3 hours but i am never underneath three and a half hours. And then we just start heading back and, and everybody's super happy and glacierized, like I call it, and hungry and starts snacking up and eating. And, and then I drive straight away to Skofos uh, for a stop there. It's an amazing stop because there are also bathrooms there. And you're always <laughs> thinking about the bathrooms. After that, we start heading back. But then I also, I always like to do Selelandsfoss for the last stop because then I really like to get people wet because I usually, you know, like, I drop people off at... So Blue just if, if, I, if I can cut in, uh, you were talking about Skogafoss. So just for our listeners, this is this massive curtain-like waterfall falling over the cliff in between Eyjafjallajökull, the volcano that has erupted in 2000 and Myrdalsjökull, the big volcano yeah. that uh, Solheimagd is the outlet of. So it's uh, it's one of the sort of uh, iconic waterfalls there on the south coast, right? And then and you, the Game of Thrones. And the Game of Thrones, of course. Yeah. Uh, last season, the one that's least popular. Yeah. And uh, then we head over to, you said, Salyalandsfoss, which is another waterfall there. And that's You can the, walk behind it. That's the one that you yeah, is most famous, I think. People always ask, like, where is the waterfall you can walk yeah. around? Yeah, that's yeah. the one. So I drop the people off and I try to explain and drop the people off at Gluvraboy, the one in the canyon. Uh-huh. So there's another waterfall. Yes, yeah. just 500 meters away from Selelandsfoss that usually people don't know about, but it is 
by far my favorite. Uh-huh. I like it way more than Selenlandsfoss. And I take people there and then I make everybody walk to Selenlandsfoss, go behind and then I move the car and pick everybody up. So is Gljuvraboi, the hidden waterfall in the yeah. canyon, your favorite spot on the south coast? Well, no. Solheimajökull is. It is. Yeah, but it's my favorite waterfall. Yes, yeah. I get it, yeah. Okay, I have a question. What if the forecast says it's going to be raining? Would that be the reason to not uh, go to the south coast in your opinion? No, no, no. It's even better in rain. Is it? Yeah, because then sometimes the sun comes out in between and then you have rainbows all everywhere. No, the only reason to not go on to the south coast is just such heavy wind that they close the road. Yeah, but then uh, we would also cancel the tour, I suppose, in this <laughs> yeah. case, right? Yeah, we, we usually do. We wouldn't do. have a choice. Yeah. Like uh, today, I think most of the tours were actually cancelled. But yeah, I have no, to say... No, raining um, is... Yeah. In the, that, that, like we say, like the Norwegians say, there's not bad weather, it's just bad clothing. Bad clothing, yeah. And we just Gore-Tex up and we just get everybody comfortable. And if somebody comes to Iceland in that with the idea in his head, he's never going to get wet. He just did not do his homework. <laughs> That's true. It does rain uh, here quite a bit, especially in shoulder seasons. Yeah, yeah. that's for sure. And the it rain can... comes from the side. Yeah, I've been in rain and came up. Uh-huh. I have no idea how that happened, but it did. Yeah, this can happen with uh, with some wind. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And after a good South Coast Glacier hike tour, if you have like a good group, everybody's in a good mood and we've done a good hike and you come home. And yes, it's a long day for us because then we have to like, you know, drop everybody off and go take care of the car. I come home tired, but always happy, always in a good mood. Yeah, I agree with you. I have the same exact experience. I love the South Coast and it's uh, such a beautiful tour. An amazing day. Even, uh, I would say even in rain, it kind of adds to the mysticism of Iceland exactly. because of the fog and, and just the, the landscape that kind of just appear every now and then sort of uncovered from the fog and is what you can the expect. more blue. More blue as well because yeah. it washes off the crust, of the, uh-huh. the white crust of the glacier. And it becomes bluer and, uh, of course, more exciting as well. So, uh, Maga, uh, I'm going to segue to the last question. Tell us about uh, your plans for the near future. What are you up to now? I have three jobs uh, that I love all of them. And I have gone back home working for servicing young people going through the, for many people, quite difficult time in life being a young person. And I love being in service. I love being in service for people. I love servicing people on tours and keep them safe and take them down the wonders of our amazing little island that me and you have the privileges of living in. And then uh, as a wedding celebrant, so I have extreme amount of joy in everything that I'm doing these days. And it's very different than at the time that I was in five years ago. If I just look at me now and me five years ago, I'm in such a better place. I'm so way more happier of a person. People sometimes ask me, how can that be? That happened to you. You were so sick for a year. I was like, yes. But it taught me also. It was the best lesson I could ever had being so sick for a year because it was a good lesson in that I cannot take my health for granted. And I'm never doing that again. So I am now focusing on my health, like every day that I wake up, it's just like, what am I doing for myself and for my health, for my body, for my mental health? And it did, that has also taken me to this place. It took a pandemic to teach me that, but lesson learned. So that is my life missions is to have fun, laugh a lot, be around people that are giving and that I like, and who like to do crazy stuff with me and laugh with me. Like the people that you have in Troll, we're always laughing. And think about my health and be a good person. Because I like, I like that. I like to try to work on myself of being a good person. So if you guys want to have fun with us and with Maga on board of a tour bus to the South Coast and maybe possibly order uh, you to be a... Uh, a wedding, maybe, in front of Solheim Ayukut or the glacier <laughs> uh, out there? Well, we did, we, uh, I did a troll. We went and had a wedding in Katla. Uh-huh. Yo, that was amazing. So you see, there's possibilities to do that for our yo, listeners. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, you can uh, head to uh, troll.is. And if you want to talk about feminism, I'm also your girl. 
Absolutely. There you go. <laughs> you know, so MAGA has your girl for, uh, for, for most of those things or all of those things and probably many, many, many more of them. So Me or somebody else, we have amazing tour guides at all. Just come over and let's have... Let's go have a ride. Let's have a f- some fun together. Yes. So you guys can uh, go to our website, troll.is, that's troll.is, and uh, book a South Coast tour with Glacier Hike with Maga or any other of our amazing uh, tour guides. Thank you very much, Maga, for Thank joining you us. Too. Yeah, it was an uh, amazing uh, experience to have you over and to yeah. talk to you. Finally. It was nice. I appreciate it. And uh, you guys, I'll hear you on the next podcast. Bye-bye.